This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here back home in the United States with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hello. And Rebecca Ford. Hi. So it's been a while since we all gathered. Um, the last time you heard this roundtable, I was uh, in my Toronto Airbnb about to leave, kind of still in the thick of festival um, excitement and madness on some levels. Um, and so I think now that we're all home, we've kind of been able to assess what we saw. There's been a couple sales of titles and a sense of the buzz. Um, we're going to kind of look back over festival seasons, how it changed uh, what we expected out of this award season, and then maybe what it revealed that we still don't really know and um, what we can't really count on. But before we get into any of that and also revisit Dumb Money, since that's coming out this week, I wanted to promote something that we're going to be doing over at Vulture. Um, Our friend Joe Reed, frequent guest on the show, has put together the Movies Fantasy League for the second year in a row, and we're going to be participating in it, and we'd love for you to join us. When you sign up, you go to moviegame.vulture.com. That will kind of explain the rules a little bit. It's basically fantasy football, but for movies, you draft a team of eight movies, and throughout the award season, you get points for how well they do. So if you ever wanted to gamify your hunch that something's going to be a big contender, this is a great way to do it. So when you go to sign up, again, that's moviegame.vulture.com. You can put in a league name. um, And if you want to play with us and play against each other and see how the Little Gold Men Nation fares... Uh, use the league name Little Goldies. That's all one word. There's no spaces allowed. So it's Little Goldies, one word, G-O-L-D-I-E-S. And play along with us and see how each other do. Um, we'll tweet about this. We'll talk about it throughout the season. Um, but I think it's a fun way to kind of gamify award season and dive even deeper into something we all love. So join us. Okay, so moving on, I did want to revisit Dumb Money, which you heard me talk to Craig Gillespie about last week. Um, Richard, you reviewed it from the premiere at Toronto. It is opening more widely now. I'm not really sure we're going to include it in many of our Oscar season conversations, even though it's a pretty good movie. Um, so I thought we ought to give it a little bit more of a spotlight. Because, um, Richard, I think you were among a couple people who maybe didn't love Itania or Cruella and um, found yourself surprised by this one. 
Yeah, I just actually added it to the sort of running list that I have of the best movies of the year so far that people can read on the site. Um, which, you know, if you had told me a few months ago that I'm going to put a Craig Gillespie movie on there, I would have been surprised. I have nothing against the man himself. He seems very nice. But he's very nice. I just don't really click. And apparently I've heard other people say that he's like a real mensch. So I, I believe that. But um, I just haven't really clicked with his movies before. And I think that Dumb Money does two things well. One is that it tells a very interesting story that is, yes, about the GameStop stock meme phenomenon, but that, of course, zooms out and it's really about like the really corrupt way that money works in this country and has for, I don't know, I don't know, since Reagan deregulation or before then, I don't know. Um, And Gillespie stylistically kind of restrains himself a little bit more than he has in past efforts, even though this is a big whizzing kind of big short-esque movie. It isn't overly embellished, which I appreciated. It mostly tells the story in kind of a sober way um, and lets a sort of natural comedy arise from that. I feel like for people listening to this uh, with me saying we're not going to talk about it for the Oscars, like it doesn't totally make sense because it premiered at Toronto like the same night as American Fiction, which we're certainly going to talk more about. It's a big studio fun movie, but so is Barbie. Um, And I don't want to knock it again by saying it's not necessarily in the awards conversation. I feel like it's kind of to its benefit for it to be in a category on its own. But do any of you guys have like a better explanation for why we can celebrate dumb money, but then maybe move on through the season after that? I think that, you know, we had this conversation a little bit about Saltburn. You know, we were sort of going over the reactions to that movie from Telluride and like, okay, is it suddenly not Oscar-y? I think it's okay, and in some ways better for there to be like fall dramas, thrillers that aren't, that are good and well-made, but that aren't part of awards. You know, I think they hopefully, they I mean, they used to be able to stand on their own. Now it feels like it's blockbuster or Oscar and there's little in between. Yeah. Um, unless you're Barbie or Oppenheimer. Unless, well, but I think, but those, you know, exactly. Yeah, well, they're both. Um, but I think that in Dumb Money's case, like, it's of an ilk with, you know, movies like The Big Short and TV shows like We Crashed and other things. Uh, the Dropout, like, about these kind of boom and bust things in of recent history that are, for all their kind of thriller, suspenseful, you know, entertainment value, also in a accessibly popcorny way. Um, actually informative about certain mm-hmm. things. And so they have a value kind of innate to, to themselves. I mean, dumb money has a value innate to itself rather than its potential as an awards horse for the studio, you know. Um, and I don't know that it's, I haven't really tracked its box office in its first weekend, but like, um, I would hope that there's enough interest in it. Although I do wonder if the people who participated in the sort of, you know, driving up the stock price of GameStop to defy, you know, evil hedge funders who are short selling it, um, which is what the movie's about. Um, I don't know if they'll necessarily want to or will see themselves represented in this Hollywood movie. You know, they might kind of view it as like a different form of the enemy making a movie about them. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Like a big fancy studio uh, making money about the Robin, you know, stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. <laughs> I mean, I did see someone online when the reactions to that movie were coming out of Toronto saying like, you know, depending on how you look at it, Dumb Money was funded by a hedge fund, you know, <laughs> like, and and it's like, well, that's a fair point, you know. Um, so it's not a perfect movie. I kind of wish it was a movie that um, didn't say, hey, there's a better way for the stock market to function and instead said, what if we got rid of the stock market, um, which is as if anyone who's seen um, the Lehman trilogy can attest it, it is uh, the root of a lot of evil in this country. Um 
so yeah, it didn't. It doesn't quite go full like destroy the system populist, which might you know alienate some of its uh, some of the people it's about. But I think for my money, like I will show it to my parents when I'm home for the for Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. it'll. There's nothing too you know profane or whatever in that movie that I would kind of sit. I mean, my parents, you know, they loved Big Short when I showed it to them, and for whatever reason, it was the third time I had to sit through that movie. But um, <laughs> I can do Dumb Money a second time for sure. It's interesting because, Katie, you ask this question of why isn't it an awards movie? I think we have to acknowledge that that choice is also made by the studios in a in a way we have little power over. I think, mm-hmm. you know, obviously there have been films every season that some of us say, why, why aren't they pushing that movie, you know? And they make those decisions in-house. And I, this is a Sony film, right? So I think they're pretty uh, selective about what they push in this space. So... You know, I mean, the way you guys are raving about it, I I haven't seen it yet, but it makes me feel like, why isn't it an awards movie? But, (laughs) um, you know, part of that decision isn't on us or on on the people who cover these movies or even the people who vote for them. It's who is putting the money behind those campaigns. Yeah. Just generally with Toronto movies, especially recently, I feel like they, you know, that festival serves an important function in just platforming and introducing movies that are, you know, adult movies that have smart things to say with good performances that don't necessarily need to go that kind of distance. Like there were a number this year that I like, like I liked The Burial a lot, which is an Amazon release. I don't think it's going to be an awards movie for them, but it has a great Jamie Foxx performance and it ha- it's a very well-mounted true story with um sort of an old-fashioned courtroom drama feel. Like there's there's a lot of movies that that festival particularly brings in that are of a slightly larger scale that, you know, fall under the quote-unquote crowd-pleasing umbrella, which got very overused (laughs) uh, over the past week. But, you know, it it does apply, and I think it speaks to maybe what that audience and hopefully audiences beyond Toronto are, are searching for, which is movies that are a little bit elevated, but not necessarily going for that prestige slot we talk about for months and months yeah yeah i think you look at something like were were they both 2019 hustlers and knives out yeah they were yeah they were both at that tiff and like hustler uh, knives out eventually did get an oscar nomination for screenplay hustlers obviously j-lo had a ton of buzz should have gotten yeah Yeah. (laughs) they they both had to just settle for being big blockbusters (laughs) they made both made a lot of money um but i think maybe at least i'll speak for myself that kind of confused my picture of toronto because it was like but those movies were were sort of hits in in the old school you know studio vein but also kind of awardsy and so you know i i do i i i am guilty of kind of blending the two but yeah, I think Dumb Money itself is just like a fun fall movie that I hope people will seek out. Um, it's not perfect, but um, I think it's, it's really entertaining, if nothing else. As far as I can tell, its release is really identical to The Woman King last year, which was also a Sony movie, which premiered at Toronto and opened in theaters very soon after the festival in September. Um, and that's a movie we had really high awards hopes for and I think really belonged in that conversation. So you think the same studio, like seeing how it didn't pan out for The Woman King, might have adjusted for something like Dumb Money, but I think they're just following a different path. Woman King was yeah. a Sony movie, right? I'm not wrong. It about was. That. I mean, okay. I think I think Woman King is is a it's a different kind of example because there was a lot of of weight on yes. that movie to go a certain distance in the awards race, and Sony did put a lot behind that. 
I don't know if we want to revisit that whole thing right now. But <laughs> don't open we'll, that wound. Yeah, uh, that the was, Woman King uh, and Hustlers together. Those are two sore disappointments in recent years. I think that it's easier for Dumb Money to skate through and hopefully have a, you know, a fine box office run and, and have a lot of admirers without mm-hmm. having that significance or that extra pressure attached to it. Whereas that really wasn't possible for The Woman King, unfortunately, yeah. even as it had a successful run. Yeah. I'll say one last thing for Dumb Money, which is that I think if I were putting together a Best Actor 5, I would not even myself be able to make room for Paul Dano because there are so many contenders, which we can talk about. But he is really good in Dumb Money um, after being really good in The Fablemans. And I just, you know, his ship's coming in really soon. Um, So if you've been watching Paul Dano and rooting for him, that's another reason to see it. It's also great to see America Ferrara, who, you know, really had a great nice role in in Barbie and then a a really good role well performed in this. Like she's on a hot streak, which is Mm. um, pretty cool. Yeah, a lot of good actors to catch up with and be happy you saw. So, yeah, go see Dumb Money. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, to move on to our broader festival conversation, um, my goal was to structure ourselves a little bit because I think it's very easy to get yourselves tangled up because we could talk about every Oscar category because we saw a contender in probably (laughs) all of them in the past couple of weeks. So I wanted to go around to everyone and um, start with something that you saw at a festival or a turn at a festival that changed what your expectations were for the season ahead. Um, And then after that, get into what we still don't know, what expectations still haven't been answered. Um, And I'm going to go first because it was my idea and take the most obvious one where I think we have to start, which is the winner of the Audience Award, the People's Choice Award at Toronto over the weekend, which was American Fiction, uh, which I very proudly predicted would be in first place with holdovers in second place uh, about 45 minutes before the announcement. So I think that's going to be my best prediction of the season. It's not going to improve after that. So I'm just going to slip you the results. Uh, (laughs) Grolsch itself. Actually, (laughs) I don't think Grolsch sponsors it anymore. Um, But anyway, I don't think that was a hard prediction. We talked a lot about American Fiction last week. Um, But it did really cement what I think we all realized, which is American fiction was flying a little bit under the radar going into Toronto and is now a real contender. Um, How far do we think we should expect it to go or how far are we rooting for it to go? It's a good question. Yeah, I mean, if based on history, recent history with Toronto, we should expect it to be a Best Picture nominee. Mm -hmm. That seems pretty reasonable at this point. Every Um, single one since 2012, I think. Yeah, and there's a real range of movies in that, yeah. you know, decade plus. So I don't think it's on the le- least likely end of that, say. And, you know, when, when I came out of that movie, 
my big takeaway was Jeffrey Wright, mm -hmm. and he's so fantastic in it. And I think he has a real narrative to run to get into that Best Actor 5, as competitive as it's already looking. He has never been nominated before, he's right? He's never been nominated. He's won an Emmy and a Tony, and he's been a part of many you know, Oscar-winning films as casts. Um, but this would be a big breakthrough, and it is a big breakthrough part for him. Um, and then Adapted Screenplay, definitely it's in that conversation. So those would be the three categories I would look at. Would you agree, Richard? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that... You know, MGM, which is releasing the movie, uh, has their work cut out for them in terms of um, getting around certain biases in, in the Academy, I think. Um, not because it's a it's a it's a black story, but because it's kind of small and academic. And it's but the thing is, if they uh, not to sort of put aside the academic sociopolitical argument of the film, but if they were in campaigning to play up the the other half of the movie, which is this really interesting family dramedy. Maybe that would be a selling point to get people in the theaters so they can experience the other side of the movie. It's it's argument and it's kind of, you know, it's not a polemic exactly, but it is, you know, certainly spiky about uh, certain aspects of racial representation in the arts. And um, so, yeah, I think I think it, it could be tricky to kind of figure out how to position that movie. But you do have Jeffrey Wright as the figurehead kind of leading that. And maybe that's probably unquestionable, because I think he's been building momentum for years now as someone who is definitely overdue. Yeah. One point on that, that I think really works in this movie's favor is and I, I do forget the critic who made this point. So I apologize to that critic. But uh, our one review out of Toronto basically signaled that if this movie were to win the Audience Award, it would be an indication of the TIFF audience either wisening up, maybe, versus where it's been in the past, or even losing more self-awareness, uh, just in terms of this being the audience that gave Green Book and Three Billboards the People's Choice Awards before they went through months of backlash over their racial politics. You know, I think this is a movie that is both very smart and very inviting in a way that could play to the Academy even more, you know, even in a way where I don't know if the Academy is not realizing the joke is on them, certain voters uh, with this movie. I, I think that they will be able to come to this movie and meet it where it's at. Uh, and I think that's a real advantage to the type of satire that Jefferson uses here. Um, so I think it's pretty well positioned along those lines because it won this award. Well, there was this really brilliant critic who I think actually works for us who compared... <laughs> Who compared? What's American his name? Yeah, I don't know. Or her name? Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, who compared American fiction to kind of a James L. Brooks movie? Yeah, um, yes. In its sprawl, it's about an idea, but it's also about family. It's a comedy. It's a drama. And it, it, it feels like a real kind of novel. You know, I've been fitting that it's based on a novel, but I think the family aspect was sort of more Cord's invention. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, but yes, it is. But like, the Academy loves James L. Brooks, or at least did for a number of years. And so I feel like maybe kind of convincing some of the older, you know, screener watching Academy members that like, this is something that you will like. It's entertaining. It's funny. It serves its vegetables to you in a very palatable package, you know. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's the matter of one or two screenings in L.A. that go well and then word of mouth starts. And then, you know, I mean, the movie is already off to the races with a big award win. But, um, you know, I think that well-placed screenings and whatnot um, are really and word of mouth is, is how that movie keeps going. I think it already had a New York screening like right after its Toronto premiere because some of our colleagues saw it in New York. So, yeah, they, they're running. 
Well, they are not running in L.A. because one person <laughs> on this podcast has been trying to get into a screening <laughs> for a while now and is still getting uh, – we'll let you know, which is a weird – I mean, I'm really – as someone who didn't get to see it in TIFF and it wasn't really on my radar other than the first look that Chris Murphy had done ahead of the festivals, I just – I really am curious how they get awareness going. I mean, obviously winning this award is huge, but – they need to get word of mouth going for this movie if it is as you all are describing it. And I think there is a possibility they maybe didn't know exactly what they had. And now the studio's got to really um, rev this up quickly. So please send me an invite to a screening. I would like to see this movie. <laughs> Crucial for word of mouth, Rebecca Ford. Yes. <laughs> I spread the word. Is it not playing New York? New York Film Festival? I don't yeah. think so. That's too bad because that would be a nice. That would be a good May- spot for it. Would yeah. it be like good at AFI? Is that, or is that too late? No, that yeah, yeah, that would well, fit the fall yeah. Well, that, that's a that's a good spot for. I mean, honestly, clearly the Toronto strategy worked out, right? I mean, to yeah. only go to Toronto or at least start in Toronto, and then winning the People's Choice Award because more often than not, it is a true Toronto premiere that wins that. But beyond that, you know, yeah, you want to see it start popping up places. <laughs> Those little regional festivals. Yeah, no, I, don't, I don't mean that pejoratively, but like Middleburg or Savannah or Mill mm-hmm. Valley or whatever. Like, I think it might be going to set Mill Valley. Places. I know for sure. Yeah. Well, and we, you know, we mentioned Jeffrey Wright as being kind of the figurehead of the movie, but I think while the actors are still on strike, Cord Jefferson is a really compelling representative. Like, he is young, and he this is his first feature film. Like, he is incredibly eloquent and smart. And and um, Katie, you can say it. He's really <laughs> handsome. He's really. I mean, we we have this like buried resentment that he used to be a blogger and he's really handsome and he's now really successful and it's just like why does some people get everything but we'll, Katie we'll we're all it. successful <laughs> and, and we're all hot you know, so. I also have the audience award uh, from Toronto <laughs> sitting in my shop um, but yeah I mean he he can just go to, if he's willing to and hopefully he is to go to all those festivals like he's incredibly charming he'll win them over immediately even if Jeffrey Wright can't be there with him okay who has their next um, expectation that was upturned or changed in some way at the festivals I'll go. Yay. Um, I think I can admit I saw Poor Things very early. And I love Yorgos. I thought the film was fantastic. But I did not know how it was going to play to audiences. Because, you know, he's a weirdo. His films, you have to <laughs> you have to really just be like, okay, there's no logic here. I'm just going to go with what he's doing. It's very bold and sexual and 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 I was like I don't know I don't know how this is gonna go um you know the favorite was even a little more traditional than this I feel like but then obviously to see it poor things win the golden lion and just the reviews were so favorable that it just felt like it quickly became a really really strong front runner and I really hadn't seen that coming I thought it would be much more um, divisive than it was so to me that was a nice surprise but I'm, you know, I'm curious how it goes when more people see it and especially sort of the more traditional members of the Academy. But maybe maybe it's because now people know what you're you're getting into with Yorgos and he really just runs with it that people are like, OK, with that now, I'm not really sure. What do you guys think? I think for me, that movie, that its success at Venice was a lesson for me in like 
that I often read tea leaves entirely wrong. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, mid-September like release. Like, yeah. yeah, exactly. But like, it was a weird release. Day. It was. But then I talked to some people kind of in the know who were like, well, actually, it was this reason. That's why it was in September. Uh, Searchlight knew all along that it was, you know, a big contender. Um, but I had assumed that thing was DOA. And I was surprised they were even bothering with Venice. You know, mm. just release it and just, you know, do a uh, light between oceans and just say what movie we never made that movie you know <laughs> like just pretend it doesn't exist but um or they're not what, like, doing that with another michael fassbender movie this year, <laughs> right? yeah. um but yeah i think you're you're right rebecca that like um i certainly had underestimated it and now it all of a sudden has swung from kind of the bottom of my festival list in terms of possibility for awards to like mm. Close to the top, if you know, again, these older members of the academy I maybe have imagined, but um, can stomach <laughs> a lot of you know, um, slightly left of center sex, anonymous Oscar ballot voters. Yeah, I, I write all those by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I talked to at least one like knowledgeable person in Toronto who was like certain that Emma Stone could win a second best actress Oscar for Poor Things, which is not really something I had entertained. That's just really rare these days, especially if you're not in, like, a, you know, runaway Best Picture frontrunner like Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs. Um, I don't know if any of us, if any of you guys you've actually seen it, want to buy into that, but she very much seems in the mix in a way that, like, as you were saying, Rebecca, I don't think any of us quite realized. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, that performance, she's so all in. I don't see how you don't acknowledge that. Even thinking about it now, I'm just like, how did she really commit to that? It's pretty wild. Um, and she also produced, which obviously she, she can't be out there talking about this movie, but I think that's a really um, impressive feat for her because it does sound like she was really on the ground from the beginning with that movie. So it would be great to see her get that um, kind of attention. I also think Venice was the perfect place for that movie and then to bring it to Telluride because we were in Telluride and everyone was talking about how well the Venice premiere went and then they showed up there. It's just like that's sort of the dream uh, rollout, I think, you know, for an awards film. So they really did that well. It's yeah. a it's a very different movie, but it was a similar kind of Venice to Telluride trajectory that Tar had last year where it was the best reviewed movie out of Venice, Kate Blanchett got incredible reviews, particularly, and it just kind of maintained that in Telluride. And, you know, Poor Things is going to get more nominations than Tar. I would almost be sure of that, just given its, you know, below the line prowess. Like it is a brilliantly made movie top to bottom. Um, and I think there's more opportunity for acting nominations as well. Um, but it's the same kind of thing where I, I, it's 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 an art movie and it's going to be a critics movie for sure. And we will see how that translates once it broadens out a little bit. Um, but Wait, that's David, not to Tar say it's not a huge... six nominations. You really think it's it's like easily going to get past that? Easily. Yeah, with Below the Line. Wow. I mean, I would bet on five right now above the line, which is picture, director, Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and screenplay. Wow. So. Oh, yeah. We, talk about Mark Ruffalo, because he, like, I didn't expect everyone to come out talking about him either. <laughs> well, he lives upstate. Um, <laughs> he loves the environment. Um, he does love the environment. Yeah. Mark, come in here for a second. <laughs> he's phenomenal in the movie, yeah. and he's he's hilarious. And that's one really interesting dynamic that's developing and supporting actor, particularly, is you have him and Ryan Gosling, uh, along with people like Robert Downey Jr. up top, but Gosling and him specifically are... I mean, they're both kind of playing Ken-esque roles, <laughs> um, and they show completely new sides of themselves or lean into the best sides of themselves as actors, in my opinion, um, where they uh, allow themselves to be 
silly and weird and fun and also enhance uh, the story that the director is telling, which is centered on uh, a woman in both cases. So he's very much in the mix, I would say. Yeah, Ruffalo also lets himself be really unlikable. Um, which, mm. you know, once in a while can, I think, be a hindrance for Academy stuff. But, like, Olivia Coleman won an Oscar for being unlikable in a Yorgos Lanthimos movie. So it's mm-hmm. there is there is precedent. It's very playful. It's not like he's playing a terrifying villain. No, he's that, a buffoon. You know, he's a buffoon, exactly. He's The joke is on him. All right, David, do you want to go next? Sure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in the opposite direction, and I'm going to pick a movie that I— well, that I, a movie that I love and that I think is going to have a tough time this season uh, that I saw at the fall festivals, which is The Zone of Interest. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a tough movie, I think, to break into really any category. And that said, I could see it getting into picture, director, screenplay, supporting actress for Sandra Huller. Score. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely could and it's absolutely in it. And I, I really commend A24 for getting behind it because it, it deserves it. Um, but it, it's a very esoteric and very... It's a, it's a Jonathan Glazer movie, <laughs> uh, which, you know, he infamously had, you know, under the skin screen at Telluride. And he talked about this with this movie at Telluride. And, you know, I think it was over half the theater walked out. Um, he's not the most audience friendly director. The reason I, I pick this movie is because going into Telluride and also played in Toronto, you know, I'd seen the reviews, including Richard's and the movie was so beloved. It won second prize in Cannes. And... The difference for me versus his past movies was knowing what it was about, which is this, you know, meditation, realization of the banality of evil, um, a really harrowing portrait of life during the Holocaust that I would suspect, I suspected would resonate with Academy voters. And, And I think that there is definitely a group for whom this movie will very profoundly resonate. Um, But I think for others, it's going to be a movie that's a little bit difficult to connect with. And in terms of the amount of, you know, international contenders, art house contenders that are able to find their way into a top 10 that has Oppenheimer and Barbie and Killers of the Flower Moon. And we can also talk about, you know, the holdovers. And that also will now, I think, have room for movies like Anatomy of a Fall, I think it's going to be a challenge. Um, and, and that kind of surprised me um, in a way where I was maybe had to be reminded of what a Jonathan Glazer movie is, why he's great, and why he may not be built for the Oscars necessarily. And not to be cynical and say that there can only be one movie about this terrible and pertinent subject, but like you also had the Anthony Hopkins movie One Life, um, which is a Holocaust story from a very different angle that is a big crowd-pleasing tearjerker that maybe could steal some of the, I don't know, the the attention on that subject matter from Zone of Interest. I don't know. That movie doesn't have a distributor yet, right? I'm releasing it's it, not. which is why oh, which is, I should have said. <laughs> Hashtag ad, sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's Warner in the UK, so I don't know what that means for the US, but... Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think we can, you know, maybe talk about this more broadly, but the lack of sales from Toronto is still kind of baffling us. Um, Hitman went to Netflix uh, yesterday as we record this, which, you know, seemed like such an obvious pickup. There was Woman of the Hour, which I think had already happened by the time we recorded. Um, My beloved Sing Sing, A24 picked up. I'm really excited, but we're still waiting on a lot of other stuff. So um, there could still be some more party crashers coming into this race. Yeah. The Hitman one was a little bit of a bummer for me. I understand the economics behind it, but I was hoping that it a distributor would get the chance to, I mean, they're obviously going to get outbid by Netflix, but I just, that movie is such a fun thing to watch in a theater. And it's too bad that, I mean, I guess it will be released in some theaters, but only for like a week or two. 
Yeah, you know, I, I hold on to the glass onion model, and you know, people got to enjoy that in theater. So maybe they'd be willing to do something similar for Hitman. Hollywood Reporter did indicate in their report on it that it was mostly streamers vying for that movie. So I'm not even sure how how far that would have gotten. Sadly, mm. sorry, Crackle. Better luck next year. <laughs> uh, Richard, do you want to pick what uh, changed your expectations? Yeah, I just want, I was going to piggyback off something Rebecca said uh, about poor things being really well-placed at Venice. I think there was a big movie that was not well-placed at Venice, much to my surprise, which was Maestro. Mm-hmm. Um, that movie, obviously, it got respectful reviews. Um, people were excited to see it, le- a little bit less buzzy afterward. Not that, they, not that they didn't like it, it just didn't grab them like poor things had, um, I think, the day before at Venice. Um, and I was talking with friend of the podcast, David Sims, about it, and he really laid it out, you know, what I had sort of floating in my head, he made, laid it out more succinctly. He was like, Italians don't really care who Leonard Bernstein is. <laughs> and you kind of think, okay, in the terms of festival strategy, New York Film Festival is not in recent years a place for huge, huge world premieres. But if there was going to be one, why wouldn't it be Maestro? You know, um, it does put it at a slight couple week disadvantage in terms of the campaign. But like, does that really matter when you have Netflix behind you? Like they could have waited, been that much more anticipated, played to a home crowd. um, And maybe it would have um, taken off a bit more because when I saw the movie um, a couple days before the festival, like I was like, oh, well, sure thing. Bradley's going to win. Carrie, like close, could win Best Actress, all that. Now I don't really know. I think it has all of the component parts to merit that. They're great performances. The film looks good. It's well-directed. But I don't know. Maybe maybe New York will be a second life for it because I just think the Venice thing, um, they were not able to repeat the Star is Born thing because Star is Born is a more universal story, I guess. They're also just so at a disadvantage because their director and star cannot be out there. I yes. just keep thinking about how... We don't get to hear the stories about how Bradley Cooper has loved being a composer since he was 10 or something in his living room. Like, we're mm-hmm. just missing... Well, we did hear that because you talked to Jamie Bernstein, didn't we? <laughs> Is yeah. that where we got yeah. that from? <laughs> there may be press notes out there that say that. But <laughs> these other films, the directors get to still be out there and, and and speak for the film. And I don't know. Yeah, maybe if they'd waited for a later festival, there'd be a chance he could be back out there. We still don't know what's going on with the timing. But to not have even your director out there to talk about it, especially when this is such a director's film, at least to me, like he really displayed his abilities as a director and he can't be out there. It's really rough. I think that's the problem. I think it's a really, it's an inevitable, unfortunate situation for that movie. No, not inevitable. They could have made a deal and like figured this out. Yeah, but, studios. You know, studios you are, <laughs> let's talk to, this, talk to Netflix about why they're hurting Bradley Cooper. In, okay, yes. In ter- <laughs> inevitable in terms of Maestro. Like the second that the SAG strike, you know, yeah. began, yeah. that movie was at a really particular disadvantage because, you know, Greta Gerwig may be an actor. She's not an actor in Barbie. Same with Emerald Fennell and Saltburn, uh, who is an excellent, you know, advocate and speaker for that movie. Um, I moderated a past lives Q&A over the weekend where the whole cast is already getting out there for that movie as a Celine song. And that makes a huge difference for that movie. You can clarify they, they got an interim agreement like last week, right? Yes, thank yep. you for clarifying. <laughs> uh, yes, um, as many A24 and Neon movies are getting, particularly. Um, you know, with Anatomy of a Fall, you had Sandra Huller in Telluride and the filmmaker Justine Triet in both Telluride and Toronto. And this is the moment, I think, the point where you're going to start seeing the difference in terms of things like momentum, what people are talking about um, between the movies that can have 
you know, one person out there, a whole cast out there, a star out there, and really nobody out there. And Maestro is, as far as I know, really the only one at that level of a disadvantage campaign-wise. Mm. So it's it's unfortunate, but that's just the reality. And I do think at a place like Venice where you know, those press conferences are so important and who's getting the ovation is important. And it had its own moment with the family there, um, but it it does make a big difference. I was going to throw this out in the what we still don't know part, but I can do it now. I feel like the maestro homecoming in New York, it's doing a big gala presentation at like at the home of the Philharmonic on October 2nd, I think is the date. Um, I think it's going to be huge. I feel like the the, it's going to get a second wind out of that because like Richard, you were in Venice, but not everybody was in Venice. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's that kind of inevitable cycle where you're like, well, this is what the critics said at Venice. I'll be the judge of that. You, you mm-hmm. know what I'm talking about, where, like, the next round of screenings just kind of turns in some way. Um, so I feel like, if you know, Maestro seems to have a lot of power from what you guys are saying about it. And I think in a really receptive New York audience, it could really get a big lift. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, the Venice audience is, like you said, limited. Um, I mean, New York Film Festival is limited, too, but it's bigger. You know, it had the people, you know, press people have much more access to that if they live in the New York area. I imagine... You know, I'm pretty convinced that movie is going to have a huge sort of rebirth. Um, not that, I mean, it's barely been born, but like, you know, it's going to have, that's going to be its true premiere, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like it did the out of town tryout <laughs> yeah, and now it's on Broadway and I think it's going to play very well um, as it should, um, which is cool. You know, you, you also think about something like this is a much wider gap and I've mentioned it 18,000 times on this podcast, but like going to see some random Saoirse Ronan movie called Brooklyn at Sundance, and then no one talked about it for months and months and months and months. And then I think it popped up at Telluride, maybe, or one mm-hmm. of the fall festivals, and all of a sudden it was this big Oscar contender. I think in a much more compressed timeline, I mean, Maestro is never anonymous, but like, I think its peak is is far from, you know, Venice was not its opportunity to peak by any means. Yeah. yeah. We all agree it has the goods, I think, mm-hmm. those yeah. who've seen it. And I think that's should be what matters. <laughs> yeah, maybe it just has to have sort of the opposite trajectory as A Star is Born, because I think we've been comparing those, um, you know, maybe having this big launch in Venice, but maybe it's got to be sort of a something that peaks a lot later in the season and that might be better for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like Star is Born, you know, played uh, Venice, huge hit, went to Toronto, played very well, then opened, you know, a few weeks later in October. Yeah. So like yeah. Maestro is not that same story. It has and longer. Bradley Cooper got snubbed in director for Star is Born unfairly. So maybe that's, Correct. you know, the, a different path is merited. Um, to loop back a little bit before we get into what we don't know yet, I do think we should talk about The Holdovers, which was on mm-hmm. my list of expectations that were shifted, not because I don't think we expected big things of Alexander Payne, but it was, you know, second place in the audience award voting in Toronto. was a huge crowd pleaser when I saw it. Um you know, I think I thought of Alexander Payne as like kind of prickly and somber, like Nebraska style. But and this movie is somber in its own way, but really easy to wrap your arms around. So I think I'm really bullish on the holdovers more beyond the pretty bullish I was before this. And I think we all kind of agree on that. Yeah, it was my favorite thing. I, I mean, I'd seen a few films before Telluride, but my favorite thing on the ground in Telluride, it was my favorite screening experience. I just think it's it's just so easy to love that movie. So I think... The Academy will feel the same about it. I agree with you, Katie. Yeah, I feel like that's definitely screenplay, supporting actress, lead actor, maybe even supporting actor and picture. Like, I, like I, yeah. I think that it's such a crowd pleaser, but in an intellectual way, like mm-hmm. kind of like American fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, less you know politically pointed than than American fiction, certainly. But strong but Boston energy in both <laughs> New England energy, yes, and then they do go to Boston. Um, but let's be specific, Katie. Come on. Um, 
Oh, Katie, are you are you are you calling in from the Outer Banks? Oh no, <laughs> they're different parts, states. Um, yeah, but no, I think it's a real. It's I really loved it, and I cried when when I it wanted me to cry, and I laughed when it wanted me to laugh, and you know yeah. it does its job very very well. My expectations were not adjusted because I did predict it to win Best Picture on our year oh, in advance. Wow. Out. Did you? Oh, you wow. did. Talk about a holdover. <laughs> so I'm not not sticking to it. I, I thought I think it has kind of everything for what we have seen of those winners lately, which is it is very far too early to predict a Best Picture winner, but especially when you have a lot of strong contenders in the race. But it's. It already feels like kind of an underdog that a lot of people like, which is exactly the path that every movie of late has taken to a win, Mm -hmm. exception of Nomadland, um, with the exception of the COVID year, which is always an exception. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I I think it it went over as well as it could have, honestly. And even not winning the People's Choice Award and coming in second is probably slightly ideal. It still gets to be an underdog. (laughs) Because it, yeah, I mean, it doesn't get that Fableman's or that Belfast baggage where it just suddenly becomes the entire narrative around the movie. And that whole campaign then spends months trying to catch up to it and can't because it's unrealistic. So... Uh, yeah, it's very well positioned right now, just enough under the radar and very widely liked already. Um, speaking of crying at Toronto, I mean, I was crying in Toronto a lot when I wasn't in movies, but that's a matter for... <laughs> I'm sorry for a... being so mean to you, Richard. Yeah, yeah. Oh, guys, Katie's horrible in person. <laughs> yeah, I'd I forgot. two drinks and she's <laughs> brutal. Yeah. Well, there was no drinking in Toronto, David. But, um, <laughs> Obviously not. Um, but I, I caught up with one of Katie's favorites from the festival, which she reviewed uh, beautifully for us, um, His Three Daughters, the Azazel Jacobs movie that I went into skeptical, even though people said they loved it because I didn't like his last movie, French Exit. And I had to meet, um, again, friends of the podcast. Joe reading Chris File for lunch right after, and I was crying when I walked into the restaurant. We're talking 15 <laughs> minutes after I got out of the movie. Um, and then I would start talking about it and start crying again. That movie is a knockout. Um, I don't think it got sold at Toronto. I, I heard I'm hoping so- by the time people hear this, maybe it will be. I'm really waiting for it. I heard that one cool film distributor with numbers in its name was sniffing around it, but I don't know <laughs> if that's actually just a Toronto rumor or not. But um, three beautiful performances from Carrie Coon and Hasha Leone and Elizabeth Olsen. And one other great performance, but I won't spoil, but it's just like, I, I thought it was, it's one of my favorite movies I saw there, and it was the second to last movie, and I was really pleased that um, Katie, among others, had urged me to see it, because it was, it's great. Yeah, I do think that was a big word of mouth thing um, among, you know, I knew one person who had seen it beforehand, which is why I went to check it out, but I think those of us who were at the premiere were just like, no, you, like, you really need to set aside your skepticism. Um, and I like, unlike, you know, Hitman, which I think it makes sense to release next year, which I believe is the plan. Like, I think if someone could pick this up and put it out, like, go put Natasha Leone in the supporting actress race. Like, there's yep. no reason she couldn't be really strong in there. Uh, mm-hmm. But someone just has to get it first. Talk about someone with industry goodwill, like Jeffrey Wright, you know, yeah. at, like mm-hmm. Paul Giamatti, like that. Like, she is beloved and has been through a crucible, you know, of her personal life in, in you know, past years and has come out, you know, really shining and um yeah that would be a really exciting and probably not that hard campaign i'm alex schwartz i'm nomi fry i'm vincent cunningham and this is critics at large a new yorker podcast for the culturally curious each week we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love books movies television music art and i always want to talk about celebrity gossip too of course What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? 
there's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> All right, let's go to what we still don't know. Um, We'd like to pretend we know everything. Um, I do think there's plenty of mysteries to wait on. And I'm not going to go first uh, this time and take something too easy. So maybe, Rebecca, what what are you still waiting to know from this season? Well, a bunch of things, I have to say. (laughs) Um, But the thing I've been thinking about a lot, and I was at a screening last night where we were sort of talking about these sort of these actors that have had these breakout performances that we may never get to hear from in phase one and how that affects their chances. You know, we talk a lot about uh, screenings and, you know, actors getting presented with awards and being in the spotlight and how that helps their campaign. But I think this season is really going to show us if that does or doesn't. You know, I think about Charles Melton in May, December, or Divine, Divine Joy Randolph, or even Lily Gladstone, who has a lot of momentum. But to not have these actors out there, you know, telling their stories, I think, could really affect their chances when we're talking about races that are already very competitive. Or even like a, a more well-known actor like Gael Garcia Bernal, like Cassandra is so good because of him. And without him out there, I just don't know if he has a chance, you know, to land a spot. And he was going to get a Telluride tribute, yeah. which is a huge platform. You know, yeah. that's it was going to be him and Annette Benning, for example. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so God, it's just, Annette, the hits just keep coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even for, you know, established actors, it's, it's the same thing where I just I'm really curious if that just it really hurts, especially people who need that, you know, name recognition and need to be out there right now for that. It might be a really cynical question, but I'm curious what any of you think about this. Like, let's say there's a movie that it's probably not a best picture contender, but it definitely has strong acting possibilities. The, the union is now against the studios that would then have to be promoting that or campaigning mm-hmm. that actor without the actor involved. Do you think they'll throw as much money behind that as they normally would because they're kind of at odds at the moment? I don't know. I mean, I think that's a really interesting question for like Netflix. Like if they, you know, feel like they have something that's an above the board, like a, a all around contender versus, you know, something like Rustin, where it's like really a performance mm-hmm. that you think will get in there. Like how do they choose to allocate their resources knowing that the actors are not present for it? Um, I would imagine that's a question they're really asking themselves. And that the actors are vocally displeased with their business practices, <laughs> you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't even know how to answer that. It's so complicated. And I think it's evolving as you know they learn more and we learn more about what's connecting. Um, but it's a difficult negotiation internally, I would imagine. Yeah, it's uh, you know how you were referencing the 2020 Oscar season, David. It's, I think we all know it sort of has this asterisk. I kind of wonder if these acting races have that too, because it's mm. just a different model this year. Yeah, I mean, in the acting races, do you think? you know, like Adrian Brody example, like, you know, it leaves less room for someone to come up and be like, whoa, we didn't know this guy at all. And now here he is blowing our minds. Like it's going to default to Paul Giamatti, Leonardo DiCaprio, Killian Murphy. I think I think it works both ways. I mean, you know, we're talking about best actress. 
you have a case where Emma Stone is going to, I think, have a very steady campaign just on the basis of raves and critics awards. You have Sandra Huller out there who has a great story, who has an amazing performance and then can show up for voters right after they see it. And it'll be, you know, that amazing thing that they get to <laughs> ask her questions, which they all love to do. Yeah, um, no, but we, we should like we should emphasize, though, that Sandra Huller, I, I think we believe she's the only lead acting like strong contender who does have a deal. Like, I guess probably her and Greta Lee now for past Greta lives. Lee, I yeah. would say. Um, and Kaylee Spaney for Priscilla. Right. I mean, she won in Venice, right. so can't rule her out. But they have an incredible advantage compared to other actors. Also, if you read VanityFair.com today, Helen Mirren is also <laughs> in that group. It's um, true. But, you know, compare those to someone like Annette Benning, where she's fantastic in Nyad. I think we all agree on that. But as far as I can tell, a campaign for her is really important. Yeah. And her getting out there is really important. And so... It is a di more difficult road to her to getting to that win for her compared to those others without um, with the strike still going on, in my opinion. Um, so it, it just depends on the contender. It can be a discovery, like I think Charles Mellon's another great example, uh, or it can be someone like Benning who has that you know more sympathetic narrative to run on. I'm going to go back to my Disney when it opens rope drop analogy. I can't wait till they can all start promoting. And it's just this mad dash, you know, Annette Benning pushing Jodie Foster aside. This is mine. You already have two. Like, how many emails will we send that day? Rebecca? It's going to be, you know, it's going to be like a week before voting opens and we're all going to be like slammed. Uh, we're going to just not sleep. Collapse. <laughs> I, my, one of my mysteries I wanted to bring up, because I feel like often we get out of the festivals and there's like, I mean, sometimes a supporting performance, like I'm thinking of Allison Janney and I, and I, Tanya, where it's just like, well, if like that campaign comes through, like it's happening. Are there mm. any acting races where we feel like there's a really clear front runner, whether from the festivals or not? They they kind of feel all wide open to me, but I feel like I often fall into that trap this time of year. And then I realize, wait, it wasn't actually that open. I feel like Downey Jr. and supporting mm -hmm. is like probably the strongest event in any of the four. I agree. Mm -hmm. um, he's got competition, obviously, in Gosling, but I think that sort of the nomination for him is kind of the like hat tip, like nice job, you know, like for him, for Gosling. Whereas Downey Jr. has, you know, 18 different narratives behind him. People love that movie. It was a big hit. He's kind of almost a co-lead. Yeah, I don't know. He feels very secure to me, but um, things could change. I agree. And I think, uh, weirdly, with Ruffalo also in the mix, like, he and Gosling do scratch a similar itch, whereas Downey Jr. is very much in his own lane. Yeah, I guess Ruffalo was the closest thing to, like, competition that emerged at the festivals. But it would really have to, like, I don't know what is the someone who could be in the same lane as Robert Downey Jr. that would be a competition for him. He's like a, a class unto himself, which is the appeal there. Yeah, a lot of people are very rich because of Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> <laughs> Including Academy voters. Yeah. <laughs> but in the all the other categories, do we feel like it's kind of a free-for-all? Yeah. I I do. I mean I, I I feel like it's it is a little bit harder to tell when you don't have these events starting up mm -hmm. and you don't have people glomming on to certain people. But, you know, realistically, these are also I think very exciting and competitive races for the most part. Like People would come out of Rustin really excited about Coleman Domingo, and you still have Killian Murphy and Leo DiCaprio kind of up top there, or Jeffrey Wright then suddenly emerges. Or you know, there's just a lot, of, a lot happening in all these races, and we're early enough where I definitely think almost all of them are are too early to call. And we talked about it with the Andrea Riceboro thing, like what does a a, a race look like without the you know 
crazy campaigning. Mm -hmm. We're at least going to get, I think, most of phase one without that. And um, so the performances just kind of have to speak for themselves. And um, I think that you know, will yield interesting results. So my, what I still don't know, uh, to go back to Netflix and New York and to this point you're making, Richard, is May-December, mm-hmm. which is truly one of my favorite movies of the year and I think has three performances that sh- should be recognized uh, from Natalie Portman, Julian Moore, and Charles Melton. Um, but it premiered in Cannes. It you know got a great reception. Netflix bought it and you know bought it for the purposes of campaigning for awards and then booked that New York opening night slot, which meant it, it, it skipped all the earlier fall festivals. And I'm, I'm really curious to see to what extent it comes back into that conversation um, without, again, the actors able to go. But, you know, it's a different energy than a lot of these movies. And I suspect it could play really well. And given how each of the acting races that, you know, those three fit into got quickly very competitive, I think, over the last few weeks... Um, it does feel like each of them not were forgotten about a little bit, but they're they're falling out of a lot of people's fives. And I wonder to what extent they will start climbing back up. Yeah, I mentioned that movie yesterday um, when I was at an event to someone as one of the movies that I really loved that I've seen. And, and they were like, where did you see? Like, like we couldn't even, they couldn't even figure out where I'd seen it because you forgot it was at Cannes and it didn't do any of the festivals yet. So it's not in that like buzz cycle right now, but I, I, I'm curious too. I, th- I, I feel like it's going to have a strong second wind, I guess we'd call it uh, after New York. And I, I feel like it's something critics groups will love. I feel like the wave is coming, but I agree. Like when you, everyone's talking about every other movie right now, it, it is a little weird to have it be so quiet. I mean, the one disadvantage is that not a lot of women or gay men go to the New York Film Festival, so I don't... <laughs> it's hard to find them in New York. <laughs> I'll say, like, anecdotally, at both Toronto and Venice, people who weren't at Cannes, that, that was the number one movie they couldn't wait to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I think it because it was perfectly positioned at Cannes, it didn't... I know they wanted it to win awards, obviously, there, and, and it didn't, but, like, it got great reviews, lots of buzz, it could kind of lay low for a while, let a lot of other movies blow through, and then remind us yeah. of itself in a grand fashion at New York. Yeah. I would throw a sidebar on that for Killers of the Flower Moon, which I don't think is lying in wait in quite the same way. Like, we all know that it's coming. It has gigantic name, names attached to it. But I think a lot of people haven't seen it. And there is kind of this gap in the fall where there aren't a lot like Dune 2 move. There aren't a lot of like big movies we haven't seen yet. And there's a conversational lull that I think that and May December and Maestro are kind of all poised to fill. Yeah. Dune 2 moved and suddenly Killers of the Flower Moon became a airport paperback poster, giant blockbuster, not doing limited release uh, campaign and more power to it. We're going to talk about that poster someday. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to the bottom of that poster. You can talk about that new trailer, too. I think it fits into that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And when they find out it's three and a half hours long, it'll be an interesting, interesting realization. I did want to talk about, in terms of what we don't know, the movies that we haven't seen yet. And... I'm down to three, I think, and you guys can tell me what I'm missing. It's The Color Purple. Uh, it's Napoleon. Um, the Color Purple, we know of some people who have seen it. Napoleon, we know of no one who has seen it. Uh, and the same with Iron I do know of. I do know of someone oh, who's okay. seen it. Oh, okay. Mm, well, then. So, um, David's found the one up. person in the universe. <laughs> it's not me. <laughs> Once again, bragging about your friendship with Vanessa Kirby. Okay. <laughs> um, and then Iron Claw, which is a much uh, different scale from The Color Purple or Napoleon, but it's a um, an A24 release with um, so many um, muscles uh, as seen in the early looks of Jeremy <laughs> Allen White and Zac Efron. Um, uh, am I missing anything in terms of titles that are just complete mysteries to us so far? 
Wonka. Oh, Wonka. Hey, look, my my firm opinion is that Wonka is going to be pretty good. So yes, throw Wonka on Katie. that list. Look, look, the trailers are charming. I don't know what to tell you. It Goodness. is the Paddington guy. Like, yeah, you know. I didn't throw it into the Oscar conversation, but look, um, but yeah, that's that's it, right? Those are like the big things that we're waiting to upend everything. I think so. That was that was my unknown as well, Katie. I mean, the thing about because that was the question like toward the end of Toronto, like people, you know, standing around cocktail parties, sick of talking about whatever movie had played two days ago. Like, okay, what's next? What do we have left? You know, um, what do we have to look forward to? And Iron Claw kept coming up. And I understand why it obviously it's like, is it a Zac Efron Oscar movie? That's fascinating. You know, the the guy from the Bears in it, you know, but like it's Sean Durkin, like he doesn't make big movies, you know, uh, at least from the two films that we know that I think he's made. Um, uh, you know, I love The Nest. It was my number one movie in 2020, but like it's small um, in, in its scope. So I don't know if maybe Iron Claw is like getting too many expectations put on its well-muscled shoulders, but um, we'll see. Yeah, even he he helmed uh, the first few Dead Ringers, and right. I really like that show, but that was a show that the Television Academy said, no, thank you, even to Rachel Weisz, who should have been automatic. So he, yeah, he's he's... In the way I was talking about Jonathan Glazer earlier, he's another one where it's probably best to temper awards expectations, if not necessarily for the movie. Well, what Durkin is really good at, I mean, he gave Carrie Coon a wonderful lead film role. Um, he kind of made a star of Elizabeth Olsen or, yep. or you know, the beginnings of her star trajectory. Um, and so Jeremy Allen White, Zac Efron, like, you know, if nothing else. Harris Dickinson. <laughs> Harris Dickinson. Yep. Um, if nothing else, they're going to get really well-written roles that are fun to perform. So and, and great to watch. So. That's, you know, maybe if nothing else, critics award. But what do we think is going on with Napoleon? <laughs> Seriously. I, just, I think it's because he's short. I think that's what it's about. <laughs> I think that's why he... Let me get Vanessa. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I, I, I don't know what this strategy, unless it's like a November surprise where they just release it and we're, we're all blown away. I'm not sure why there hasn't been a strategy to build up some buzz on this movie. I mean, he has let's say House of Gucci, All the Money in the World. Those were all really late releases too, right? Like, isn't this but the Ridley we Scott saw them pretty early? I, I think. guess so. Like, I just. I, but I, 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 I also feel like with Gucci, like the hype on that movie was yes. so intense. Yeah, it didn't. You know, it could be more of a late breaker and. The thing about Napoleon is we we just don't. There's so much we don't know about it. It was rumored for Venice before everything started, you know, falling apart, <laughs> uh, campaign wise, and they had released a trailer really early. So yeah. it's hard to say. There were rumors of a delay, which you know, who knows? I I certainly don't. But um, I'm not sure what's going on there. And Napoleon, like you know, Joaquin Phoenix is going to do as little press as possible. Usually, Ridley Scott usually isn't eager to get on the phone. So, like, it's a movie that could just speak for itself in a way. I think Vanessa Kirby is, you know, is great at doing press, and you'd like to be able to see her out there. But it it would be more strike proof than a lot of these other ones. So they have that advantage. Do you guys think anything else is going to move off the calendar? Mm. At this point, no. That's kind of where I mean, I'm leaning. Yeah, nothing that was at the festivals because like they've already spent all that money. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Yeah, you really can't extend those campaigns for however long. I mean, I, I, the streamers are you know, the same way we talked about COVID. I think in a slightly better position. the The challenge of you know a theatrical platform release is not you know they don't have that burden, and it's easier to you know throw it out there and claim whatever and get the director out there and go from there. So none of those movies, I think, are in danger of moving. I suppose we could see one more tentpole, like maybe Wonka move. I don't know. Wonka's my entire Christmas plan, so don't, don't take this away from <laughs> I'm, me. I'm gathering. I'm gathering. <laughs> 
Um, I want to throw out one more mystery before we wrap up. And it's also topical, which is that the Golden Globes have hired producers for this year's show, uh, which is still scheduled for, I believe, January 8th. Um, I need to pull up a calendar, but, you know, that first week of January. But we still don't know where it's going to air, which is very strange. So whether the Golden Globes will reclaim their place of prominence in award season, whether they will happen if the strike is still happening, that seems like a big maybe. Um, That's one big mystery we all have to live with. Even if the strike isn't happening, you say it in theory, it ends November, December. The show is in January. It has to be written. I don't, I don't, and they have no. January 7th, yeah, too. It's yeah, like, right after the holidays. I mean, they got th- these like powerhouse uh, producer directors. Glenn Weiss has produced the, the Oscars a billion times, but I don't know how they do that without the writers. I guess if the writers do make a deal in the next 10 days, they can get going, but Again, they don't have a broadcast. It. I would be terrified if I was the person planning the Colton Globes yeah. right now because a lot seems to be a big question mark. Yeah, as of now, that first two weeks of January has the Golden Globes, Critics' Choice Awards, the rescheduled Emmys, New York Film Critics Circle Dinner. There's a lot going on. And the, uh, did I say Governor's Awards? Governor's, yes. Yeah, like, it's a yeah. really crazy schedule that, um, I don't know, we'll have to see if anything budges. With Golden Globes, are... Are Drew Barrymore and Bill Maher still hosting? <laughs> yeah, they did mention that. I in think their it's Sherry Shepard now. <laughs> okay. The entire hosts of The View are hosting the Golden Globes. I mean, I guess they can air it on one of the Penske, you know, Variety.com if they don't get a broadcast. Oh outlet. man, no shade detected. Anything, anything is possible. Um, I guess I'll say to wrap it up that we'd love to hear anyone else's burning questions if you're listening to this, um, because I do think festival season gives a lot to talk about and maybe uh, not a lot of clarity, which is what we like at this time of year. Um, so, you you know, we'll, we'll talk about where to find us on social media, but our email, littlegoldmenatevf.com, is still going strong. So please send us your burning um, award season questions um, and we'll do our best to answer them. Yeah, mailbag episode would be fun. Yeah, that yeah. would be fun. Um, so, yeah, for when the strike <laughs> really never ends and there's no new movies to talk about. Ask us about our lives. <laughs> Just like, a, you know, whatever. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Again, please send us your questions. Um, find us at on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider at VF.com all over the place. I'm on Twitter at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylas. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for what everyone was saying in 1799 France goes to Rebecca Ford. But what do we think is going on with Napoleon? I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor. Let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.